Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Small gathering this morning, so if, I'm, uh, if I single any of you out, sorry, we have no other option. <laughs> good morning to those watching, hopefully online. But if you would with me, turn in your Bibles to Second Peter as we continue our study of the first chapter. We're going to be studying Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, so if you'd please turn there. And we're going to read, we're going to reread what Ben preached last week and then straight through to 11. So if you're able with me, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, we'll read this together and we'll start. Peter writes, Simeon, Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. A couple weeks ago, my family had the privilege of uh, vacationing together up at Acadia National Park. Uh, the Bets actually joined us, so that was a pretty sweet time. And uh, as we went up to the, the park, we did a little bit of hiking. Of course, we have small children, so the hiking was moderate and, you know, suitable to uh, their age level. But, you know, it's the fascinating thing as you, as you hike, and if you've done any amount of hiking in your life or you've particularly climbed anything of substance, it, it, it's really awesome to get to the summit of something and, and see the view. And in Arcadia National Park, you have this dualism of both the ocean and the woods at the same time. So you get to the summit of something in Acadia National Park, if you've been there, and, and you see just a panorama of God's creation from every possible vantage point. You have freshwater lakes, you have the ocean, you have small mountains and hills, you have uh, just a beach you can, you can look at, and it's really a, a, an amazing view. And you know, the whole time, of course, as we're hiking, <laughs> our kids, uh, most of the time, were complaining the whole way up. Because it was hard. And we, we, my wife and I like to do challenging things. So we picked some trails that were like 500 feet in like 0.3 miles. So you're basically climbing like, you know, 70 degree pitch the whole time. And, uh, but it was fascinating because we kept telling the kids, you know, it's going to be worth it at the top. 
It's going to be worth it at the top. Keep going, keep going. And of course they did. And uh, to us at least, <laughs> you have to ask them if it was worth it. Uh, but it was awesome to see the view. And it was really cool just to, to challenge our children to follow us on a journey uh, to the summit. Because I love summits and I've done a lot of hiking in my life and I, I just like summits. I mean, the hiking is hard and difficult, but the summit is always worth it. And I say that because Peter here in this opening chapter is obsessed with this concept, the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to miss this. This is central to our passage today because Peter has also had a summit experience and he's going to reference it next week. I don't want to preach that message for somebody else, but I do have to touch on it. Peter has had a mountaintop experience. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Gospels, we understand that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it says that Jesus was transformed before them uh, into glory, and they were there to witness it. So Peter has had a, a very unique experience and a very unique vantage point, even among the original apostles, of seeing the transformed image of Christ as he is in glory today. Peter writes this with that glory in view. He writes this with that summit experience in view. And he's calling the church to understand that everything we're about to look at, all of the virtues we're about to dig into, all of the growth in grace that God calls us to, is because we have seen the Christ. We have seen God's glory in his son. And that has arrested us if we're really born again. That has changed us. That has set us free. Ben preached last week that we have become literally partakers of the divine nature. And that we have been called to his, Jesus' own glory and excellence. Peter, no doubt, has this vision of Christ on the mountain in view as he writes these things and he says we have been called to that same glory we have been called to partake with christ in his victory we have been called to uh, share and be a partaker in that blessing of redemption through christ so we have been called to grace and glory and peter is writing with this summit in view but we all know what happens right when we have a summit experience what goes up must always come down and we come down off the summit and we get wrapped up in our lives. And Peter has already mentioned in the prior letter in 1 Peter 5.8 that the devil is ro uh, roaming around seeking someone to devour. So we have the adversary always on our heels. We have the distractions of life. We have the fog of war. And what happens is as we get below the summit, we can't see the forest through the trees. We lose our vision. We lose our sense of the glory of Christ that we saw, that we beheld on the mountain. And we know wisely, if we've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, that the Christian life is not lived on the mountain. It's often lived in the valley. The Christian life is lived where Jesus spent most of his life among the people. But Peter is reminding us that like the church in his day, we are prone to a near-sighted vision that fails to apprehend the glory of Christ and the hope of his calling. We stumble in the darkness. We are loaded down with guilt and shame because we don't really see Christ as he is. 
And it's really important that we see that we are called to walk by faith instead of sight. And our vision of Christ and his call often becomes just another one of the voices calling our name. So this is really what Peter is getting at. And he references that specific problem in verse uh, 9, as we just read. And we'll get to that a little bit later on. But as we start this morning, I want us to see and apprehend again the glory of Christ. I want us to pray, and as we do so with this scripture in mind, Ephesians 1, 18 through 19, where Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart are enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So Peter is calling us away from our unbelief this morning, away from our forgetfulness, to look again to Jesus. This is the call this morning, to look again to Jesus, who has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, teaching us that the Christian will always be known, notice this, not by his profession or even his confession, but his reflection. The Christian is known not merely by his profession or even his confession, but his reflection. We are called to be conformed to his image. So with that in view, let's pray this morning and we'll jump in. Father God, we thank you for the privilege it is to first of all be called sons and daughters of the Most High. We have been given this great privilege, this standing in Christ, this position in Jesus that we saw last week. We have been brought into the family. We have become partakers of the divine nature. We have been called to glory and virtue. We've been given exceedingly great and precious promises. And Lord, truthfully, when we look at your word, we see clearly that we have no more excuses. We have nothing really fettering us, holding us back except ourselves. We have nothing that's blocking the runway from us running well except ourselves. And Lord, we admit and confess corporately and individually that we do not see you as we ought. We have seen you if we have really tasted of your grace, but we don't continue to look to you. We continue to look to the things of this earth. We continue to be distracted by the fog of war that surrounds us. We continue to forget the glory that you have with the Father presently, actively, in this very minute that you are sitting enthroned in total and complete victory, surrounded by the worship of heaven, calling us to that one day, but in the meantime, calling us one step at a time, one day at a time, to more reflect the glory of Christ in our daily lives. Lord, we confess we desperately need Jesus to help us do this. So, Father, meet us this morning in a profound way. Take all the glory, let your word hit its mark, in Jesus' name, amen. In verse 5, we pick up, as we read, for this very reason, everything we looked at last week, if you weren't here, you can certainly listen to that message, I'd encourage you to do so. Ben talked about how the Lord is stirring us up, that's what the purpose of this letter, Peter is stirring us up by way of reminder. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. 
Um, these are seven virtues or seven characteristics of the Godward life. There's lots of lists in the Bible regarding lists of sin, lists of the fruits of the Spirit, uh, lists of the gifts that God's given his people. There's lots of different lists, and there's lots of lists in the epistles. But this is an interesting list because it really is a list of the characteristics of the life of Jesus. If you look at this list and, and you miss this, I think it would be quite a travesty. Peter gives us seven qualifications or qualities, you should say, as the Bible says here, uh, or, or characteristics might be a better word, and we'll see what they are. But they are a direct reflection of the person of Jesus. So again, Peter has in view not just like good ideas about what it is to be a Christian, like sometimes we have. Like we kind of know generally that we should be loving. We kind of know generally that we should be kind. We kind of know generally that we should serve. We kind of know generally that we should do this or that. And that's all fine. But we don't see Jesus. What Peter gives us in this list is the face of God. Peter gives us the face of Christ because he's seen it. And he's lived it. And he's touched it. And like many of us here, we have seen the Lord, though he is invisible to us, we have seen him uh, by the eye of faith. Our eyes of faith have begun, many of us, to apprehend the glory of Christ. And we have made a beginning, no doubt, many of us in this room, I mean, there's few of us here, and I know most of you pretty well. We have all made a beginning. And those watching, perhaps, we have made a beginning with Christ. We have begun to apprehend. But like Paul, we don't yet know as we ought. And we readily admit that. We don't yet know and see as we will. We see dimly, and we see sometimes even blindly. But our faith calls us higher. And we have had every obstacle removed to the life of faith except one, sight. Every obstacle has been removed from the life of faith except sight. Now, that's an interesting paradox that we would have left to us our physical sight, by which we are endlessly distracted, endlessly caught up, endlessly sidetracked, endlessly looking at lesser glories, loving lesser things, consumed by lesser activity. And of course, some of this is the stuff of life. We can't escape it. But Peter says, no, this, this virtue that I'm calling you to, these characteristics that we'll look at here, they are God himself. They are the face of Christ. They are the beauty and glory and person of Jesus. So God doesn't call us to abstract concepts. He calls us to himself. He calls us to be like his son. This is the great call of the Christian life. And, but we miss this call, right? We, we get distracted by even really good things. I, I know in my life so many times I've been distracted by what I'm doing for Christ or what I need to do or the, the weights of the world and the pressures of living in this broken world and, and, and providing and, and all of the things, right? We could spend all morning talking about the things that distract us, but Peter is going to contrast in this letter between chapter 1 and chapter 3 two concepts, and he's going to use broad terms in quotations. He's going to call them these things. These things are what we're going to be looking at this morning are the virtues of a life that reflects the person of Jesus because he has seen his glory. And he is being, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, being transformed from one image from glory to glory. 
by the Spirit. And that's where we are this morning. If you are in the faith, you are literally this morning being actively transformed from glory to glory. Now you say, well, that sounds really great, but it doesn't feel really great. I don't feel like that's happening. I don't see that happening, perhaps. Peter's going to encourage us around these things, that we are indeed be being transformed from glory to glory. The other things that encumber us are the things of the world. Peter's going to say in chapter 3 of this same letter that these things are going to melt with intense heat. The elemental things of this world, the, the stuff of this created order, the things that often encumber us and, and make up our daily grind, so much of these even good things, necessary things, they're going to melt, like literally melt. And Peter says, but these things are going to last. These things you'll take with you. These things will be things that, if they're in your backpack on your way to glory, are going to stay with you. They're going to get through the gate. But the other things, they're just going to, like, melt. And that's an amazing thing to ponder. So what do we put in our backpack on our way to glory, if you want to use that metaphor? Peter gives us some things to add, right? So we see this language here in the text in verse 5. But first he says, for this very reason, and we need to pause there because whenever you see that, you should kind of look at like what he's talking about. What is the reason? Because he says in the prior verse, specifically so, that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Meaning that we have escaped our Adamic tendencies brought about by the fall. That all that has gone wrong with the world from Adam on, we have escaped like, read that again. We have escaped that. Now, if you're like me, let's be real. You don't feel like that all the time. I don't feel existentially that I have escaped much of that. I feel quite impacted by it. But who's a liar, God or me? God says we have escaped. So let's believe him. Because it's true. Not only this. Because of that escaping from corruption, we must now make every effort to supplement our faith. This is really cool because literally it, it carries the, the idea, the simple language is that if you were liberated from prison, let's say you were a convict for 25 years or so and you got pardoned and you were given the jail key and a car was waiting for you on the curb and your clothes, street clothes were on the bed, I don't know of a single person that would go and hang out in the prison cafeteria and say, oh, that's, that's really nice, but I want to get one more meal in prison. No, they would run out of that place. And that's the language. This is the, the sense of urgency that Peter is developing in our minds here in verse 5, that, that the, the ex-convict, the one who has been set free from corruption, doesn't stay in corruption. Let's say that again. If we have literally been liberated from corruption, then we have no longer fellowship with the Adamic way of life, the old nature, which, of course, we know, if we know our Bibles, we still have. But we have no fellowship with it any longer. We've been given a new nature, and this is where all of the language around putting on Christ becomes really relevant, where we are pursuing godliness. We are putting off the old and putting on the new, taking off our prison clothes, putting on our heavenly clothes, 
putting on the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith, putting on these virtues that we're going to see. So all of this is sort of setting the table to say that there's an urgency to the Christian life that we should be making haste towards godliness. And we know that this is a marathon. If you've been at it for any length of time, you know that it's not an overnight thing. It's not even a once-a-week thing. It's, not even a one, it's, it's a lifelong thing. So we, we see this like long view, and we, and we almost get tired right away. We're like, wow, that's such a long way away. But God says, but we should be making haste. We should be hastening the day of the coming of the Lord. That's what this means. So Peter says, we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort. Your Bible might have, if you have the King James, be diligent. It's a great word. It's a great translation. I like the word diligent better. It gives it more precise language than just every effort. What does every effort mean? It means be diligent. It means be persistent. It means stay after it. It means that it's going to take practice. I'll never forget when I was trying out for football. I'm talking like middle school, nothing fancy. And uh, <laughs> I was like 14. I was totally scrawny. And first time in shoulder pads, first time in a helmet. And the drill was really simple. All I had to do, I thought it was simple. I quickly had a rude awakening. There was two people in pads in front of me, linebackers, so to speak. I was the guy that had to tackle the running back. The running back was behind them. You have to evade the linebackers, tackle the running back. I'm like, okay, how hard can that be? Well, I start to move forward. I'm quick. I'm, I'm thin. I'm like agile. I quickly evade the linebackers, feeling really great about life. And then all of a sudden, I get flat-footed and I stop. And the, and the running back is quick and he keeps moving. And I mean, the next thing I remember, I woke up unconscious, grabbing the pant legs of my coach, white as a sheet, sucking wind, like what just happened? And uh, he gave me a break for a few minutes, and that was my welcome to football moment. I was not ready because I was caught flat-footed because I stopped moving. See, when you hit someone in football, the goal is you've got to see through the person. You've got to see beyond the impact point. Otherwise, if you stopped at the impact point, the other impact point is greater than you, most likely, because he's moving towards the touchdown zone. And if you stop, he's going to run you right over. So I had to learn by practice that, no, you tackle someone by seeing through the point of contact. Well, I got a rude awakening that day about the necessary uh, energy that it was going to take to actually be effective in this sport and the diligence and practice that it was going to take, that I had to keep after it. I couldn't just run and then get flat-footed and stop and wait for impact because I was going to get destroyed every single time. But if I pressed through and I made diligent effort and I saw beyond the point of impact, I was going to have a good game. And that proved out in, in time. And in the same way, Peter is encouraging us, you need to make every effort. You need to see through the obstacle in front of you if you're going to make progress in this thing. Because what happens is we we, we start to move, right? We start to exercise some diligence in prayer, in reading the word, in fellowship, in corporate gatherings, in uh, all kinds of acts of service. And we start to like make a good beginning. And then we see the obstacles that inevitably come uh, at 100 miles an hour. And then we get flat-footed and we stop and we get totally destroyed. We get run right over. And we're like, what just happened? I thought I had everything I needed for life and godliness. And God says, well, you do. But you have to be diligent. You have to see beyond the obstacle. And in our lives, I think it's a needful reminder that if we're going to be effective in godliness, if we're going to grow in grace, 
then we have to see beyond the inevitable obstacles that are going to come. This afternoon, Monday morning, when you get up and you're like, I'm going to have a robust devotional life, and uh, you're exhausted from whatever you did the day before, and you stay up like an hour later than you should, and then you oversleep your alarm, and tell me how I know, because this happens a lot. And God says, well, I thought you were going to be diligent. And I'm like, well, I tried, but I got flat-footed. God says, because you saw the obstacle and you stopped. Push through the obstacle. This is the language of make every effort. You need to make haste. You need to be speedily a doer of the word. Not only that, then he says to supplement your faith. Now, this is a loaded concept. It's an awesome concept. We're going to spend a few minutes here, and then we're going to look at these virtues in order and then make a closing. What does it mean to make every effort to supplement your faith? I mean, that's been my question all week. I've been studying this since Monday, thinking about it, reading it in the morning, just immersing myself in it. What does it mean to make every effort to supplement your faith? So we know diligence. We've seen this. But this word supplement, you may have simply in the King James, add. It's an interesting word. It literally means to make ample supply in minister to someone or something in a particular way. Let's say it again. To make ample supply, to richly supply something with nourishment and nurture. So what Peter is saying is that we have this faith, this precious faith, this imperishable seed of faith that has in it the DNA to grow to great heights of godliness. This is the faith that if you're born again this morning and you sit in front of me and you're listening, you have this faith. You have this seed of incorruptible seed uh, inside of you, actively moving inside of you. It's this living, breathing seed of faith. And even if it be as small as a mustard seed, Jesus said it, it can move great mountains. So we have this living faith, Peter would say in his first letter. We have this living faith with a living hope. So what do we do with it? We, as the people of God, must see the urgency to this, that we must nurture it. We must tend to it. We must feed it. We must amply supply it. In other words, just like we would with our own bodies, with supplements of any kind, we are making up for the gaps in our diet. We are essentially putting within us everything we may need in case we don't get it in our daily diet, right? That's kind of the idea of supplements is that you're, you're adding to your basic diet. And I think in all of our lives, we hopefully have like a basic diet of godliness, but we need to add to it. We need to nurture it. We need to feed it because the simple truth is, is we have two natures, right? And if they're like representative of two animals, if you will, for lack of a better metaphor, whatever animal you feed is going to win. Whatever one you feed will carry the day. So if you have faith, which is your divine nature that you've been given in Christ, and then you have your old Adamic nature, which is dead and corrupting and, and pulling you all the way over here all the time and fighting with you all the time and pushing the diligence card to the limit every day and you know, the, the whole list goes on. But, but whatever one you feed, God promises that that's the one that will win. That's part of these great and precious promises that Peter talked about. That whatever nature you feed. So he says, supplement your faith. He means feed your faith. Feast your faith. Give it 
ample supply. Don't like just give it its bare minimum. And that's what we do, right? We get distracted. We, we forget the glory that's awaiting us in, 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 with Christ. We forget uh, that we have been liberated from corruption. We forget that we have been born again. Uh, we have forgotten that we are purified from our former sins. And we just give our faith like the scantiest little thing, the scantiest provision. And it's because we don't walk by faith, because we walk by sight, because our sight gets ample supply. How do we know this is true? Because often in our lives, the reason we don't grow in godliness is partly because we are always adding to our sight. We are not adding to our faith. We add to what we see. We always want to fill our backpack with all the things that we feel we need to be secure and safe. All that we see by sight, we are always feeding and nurturing. But Romans says, make no provision for the flesh, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Reverse that. says it the other way. But the point stands that we are called to be people who feed our faith. But it means that we have to starve something else. We cannot be both living by sight, feeding and, and, and getting our energy off of all things material, all things external, all things that take a nearsighted vision, and expect at the same time to live on the heights with God in faith. The two are incongruent. They, they're not going to live together. One is going to win. And in my life, many times, uh, and I've confessed it to some of you who I'm close with, that, that sight wins out. That the nearsighted nature of living in this world in corrupted space wins out over the far-sighted vision of the eternal call of God on my life. So what am I to do about that? Am I to say, well, it just is what it is. Just, I don't know. God says, no. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Now, we're going to go a little deeper into this word because it gets even better than this. This idea of adding to your faith, I want to just theologically just frame this in a way that we're not tri tripped up by it. Peter says in the King James, as I mentioned, add to your faith. He's not saying that we're adding to the gospel and that we're somehow now entering a works-based righteousness with God. That can easily be interpreted from reading this, that we're sort of adding to our faith because our faith is not sufficient. That would be a heresy from hell. No, what he's saying is adorn the gospel. You're, you're supplementing your faith by adorning the gospel, not adding to the sufficiency of the work of Christ. Just as when you build a house, if faith is the structure, these characteristics are the furniture. You are filling the house with all good things of godliness, without which you have this shell of a faith, but no one can stay in it. No one can enjoy it. No one can partake of the blessing of it. And God says sometimes we have a faith uh, that's not enjoyable because we're not adorning that faith with anything. It's like bare of furniture. We're sitting on the floor eating crumbs, looking for a meal. And God says, no, you need to adorn your faith. We're not adding to the gospel. We're adorning the gospel. Just as an apple tree produces fruit after its kind, Christians produce fruit after their kind, and our kind is Christ. And we are seeking to partake of the life of Christ. And we're producing fruits of the Spirit, not by merit, but by promise. Hebrews reminds us in chapter 6, in verse 11 and 12, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, the word diligence is the same word there, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those 
who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, what are we talking about when we say that this word supplement? I've got my notes all mixed up. That's all right. The word supplement in the Greek is the Greek word epichoreogro, I believe is the right way to say that. To, to put it in plain words to help us out, the reason that's significant is because if you translate that Greek and you take the latter half of that word, it's where we get, ultimately, the etymology of it. It's where we get our word choreography. Okay? So when Peter calls us to supplement our faith, he's literally saying that our faith has built inside of it a choreography, meaning a dance progression with the Lord that we are called individually to work out. We're called to work this out. So our faith has a choreography that God has called us individually and corporately to live in. And if we are supplementing our faith properly, we are making correct progress in this mode of life just as you would in a dance routine. And I'm not a dancer. If I tried to dance for you, the Spirit of God would leave the building. So I'm not going to attempt that. But there is a choreography that is associated with all dancing. That there, there's a certain pattern. There's a certain way. There's a certain process. And progression is the better word. And, and Peter is saying that the supplement of your faith is the correct progression of growth in the Christian life. That there will be a progressive growth in grace. So the real question this morning that we have to ask ourselves is, have we grown in grace? looking back to the present moment. If you look at your life, you should hopefully be able to say that we have made steps, we have made progress. If you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, like over a year or more, just to give it some sense of structure, that you should be further along in your choreography, if you will, is the Greek word for this word supplement. It's the, it's the application of this word, that you should be further along in the progression of grace. That you should be hitting new levels in the dance. You shouldn't still be learning step one. You should be leaving, Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6, the elementary things of Christ and moving on to maturity. So there should be this progressive growth in grace that comes about when you nurture your faith. The choreography of God that he has written for your life will be achieved. And it's a beautiful idea that Peter gives us here Bear with me as I got my notes all screwed up. So this choreography of God is this whole idea of supplement your faith. Let's look at these virtues. He begins by saying, what do you add to your faith? What do you nurture your faith with? Well, virtue is the first one. And this is an interesting word. You know, we don't really think much in our day of virtue. Um, I mean, if you're like a BBC lover, <laughs> all the ladies in the room, uh, <laughs> I'm not, but I watch them. Um, but, it, you know, I think of virtue, like immediately I think of like Englishmen in tall hats. That's what I think of. I'm like, eh, virtue. What is that? It's because I don't understand what virtue is. And virtue is actually such a beautiful word. And it literally means a strong, worthy Specifically, praiseworthy life. 
a strong, praiseworthy life. It kind of has in its Latin etymology the idea of manliness, okay? So Jesus was the man because he was exceedingly manly in all of the right senses of biblical masculinity. He was virtuous. And we have a, a cool encounter with the virtue of Christ in uh, the Gospels in Luke chapter 8, 43 through 48. I'm just going to quickly read that to you because it's, it really fleshes this whole concept of virtue out because there's another word um, for virtue that is used here. Well, not another word. It's the same word that is used in the Gospel account in Luke chapter 8. When Jesus encounters the woman with the issue of blood. And he says in verse 43, And as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds, so, so Peter has had a front row seat to this, and I think he's thinking of this when he writes this, of virtue. He said, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out for me. This word power is the same Greek word for virtue. It speaks of the incorruptible nature of Jesus, that when encountering defilement in ceremonial uncleanness, which was in the case of this woman in the Judaic construct, Jesus is not tainted. The uncleanness is transformed. That is the power of virtue. You could also use, and your Bible might rightly render it, as moral excellence. It is this characteristic of purity morally and ethically that transforms the uncleanness around me by the presence of the virtue that touches it. So Jesus comes onto the scene and all he's doing is walking by and this woman reaches out and grabs the fringe of his cloak and she's immediately healed. Jesus was preeminently virtuous and preeminently powerful in, in this word power, it speaks of that which is produced by the Spirit of God. The dunamis of God is the right word. And it connects with this idea of virtue that as you go through life, the moral excellence that God wants us to live in is a force to be reckoned with. That when it encounters a lack of moral excellence, which is rampant in our world, when it encounters all kinds of filth, it doesn't get tainted by it but it stays undefiled and actually alters that around it. So you can say in your life, how do I know if I'm living in moral excellence? Well, is the filth of the world tainting you? Or is the purity of Christ going through your life by the power of the Holy Spirit transforming everything that you touch? Now, I'm not saying that we're going around healing everything that's sick and necessarily performing miracles every day, but there should be a quality of virtue in our lives, of a strong, praiseworthy life. And I think, how do we get this? Well, we know that we get it from the Holy Spirit, first and foremost. It is a fruit of the Spirit in the sense that is produced by Christ's virtue, 
not my own. I look at my own virtue and it's a dismal despair in comparison to Christ. But like this woman, we can obtain this virtue by faith as I apprehend Christ personally. Just like this woman reached out and touched. And you sit here this morning and you say, man, I don't, I don't have that level of virtue. Um, the answer is reach out and touch the Lord. Apprehend Jesus. Apprehend him by faith. Just as this woman's point of contact was small, her faith was greater, and the virtue of Jesus changed her life. And we too must grow in virtue by apprehending the virtuous Christ, the morally excellent Christ, and say, Lord, I want to be like you. I want to be like you. I don't want to be tainted by that which comes my way. I want to stay pure in the midst of it. It doesn't mean you put yourself in temptation, put yourself in stupid situations to test this idea. But you're going to be surrounded by filth at your work, at your job, everywhere is filth and uncleanness. And the Lord says, but be virtuous in the midst of it. As you walk by, people should say, that's a virtuous person. Not because you're, you're something special, because the Holy Spirit has control of your life. And you're not tainted by the filth of your coworkers' jokes and the language and the derogatory nature in which, you know, people talk and all the things that we encounter on a daily basis that we know well. Jesus says we're called to virtue. Secondly, we're called to knowledge. This is awesome because this, again, is... Uh, chiefly in Peter's mind, as he's going to say in chapter 3, verse 18, that we should be growing in grace and knowledge. The two go together. Just as we grow in the grace of God, we're growing in the knowledge of God. And this word is the Greek word gnosis. Um, And it's an interesting word because it, it means kind of two things. It means, of course, growing in being informed by the truth. And it also speaks of growing in my experiential knowledge of the truth. So it's a growing in the truth and growing in my experience of the truth. So it's both apprehending truth and doing truth. This is the idea for knowledge. You know, sometimes we, we just we gain a bunch of knowledge. Uh, Paul tells us that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. But so, so what is the role of knowledge in our lives? Well, we should not be a people who despise knowledge. We are not to be a people whose lives are foolish and devoid of truth. We should be a people that are growing in grace and knowledge of the, Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's an act of learning, not a passive ignorance or a theological minimalism where we just kind of have like the ABCs of salvation and we just get on with life and we're like, well, I'm good. I have my fire insurance. No, that's not going to cut it. Peter says we need to grow in knowledge. We need to be people of the book and then doers of the book. Just as we read in the reading of the law, that we would be keepers of the word of God. So in order to do something, of course, I need to first know something. And as you think about Peter's own progression and knowledge himself of the Christ, you know, he first knew him as this teacher, then as this rabbi, then ultimately he had the revelation that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And then, of course, his hopes and dreams like crashed and burned after the crucifixion. And then three days later, he's resurrected and how he sees him as Lord over all. So there's a progressive unveiling of Christ in all of his majesty to Peter that he didn't fully apprehend on the Mount of Transfiguration. He knew that it was glorious. He knew what he was looking at as much as he could know it, but he began to know more 
as time went on. And here he writes this second letter on the eve of his own martyrdom, giving to the church a vision of what it means to live a life that is committed to knowing Christ. And this is the kind of life that we're to pursue. Thirdly, we're also to pursue self-control. And this is really in keeping with knowledge. So knowledge sort of provides the walls for self-control to thrive within. And it means the mastery of one's own desires and passions. This is really needful because, again, this is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is a proof and evidence that we are no longer slaves to ourselves. Our God is not our belly, as Paul says in, second, in, second, in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, our God is not our appetite. And this is a hard one. Because we all have areas in our lives where we say, well, I'm, I'm a self-controlled person, I'm a, dis, I'm a disciplined person, and perhaps you are. And glory be to God for that. But there's always areas in our lives where, where our God is our belly. And, 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 and this is a path, self-control will lead us away from being a friend of Christ to an enemy of the cross. And Peter is building all these virtues just as a prequel to a couple weeks from now because he's going to expose the false teacher in the church as one who lacks all of these virtues. And he wants the church to understand that because of the deception that is rising up from within the midst of the church, you need to know what Christ looks like and who we're seeking to know and who we're seeking to reflect and who we should be apprehending so that when the con artist comes into the scene, you can say that guy has no self-control. That guy is following his lust. That guy is following his belly. He is an enemy of the cross of Christ. He is not a friend of God. And he is here to deceive and to kill and to steal and to destroy and to fleece the flock. So Peter is laying the groundwork for us to be able to say this is truth and this is error. That's why these virtues are partly in keeping with the whole of the letter. Because he's saying, no, this is Christ. This is a con. And in our lives, we should be, again, living a life of self-control. Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Moving on for sake of time here. We need to wrap this up. Steadfastness. It means a hope-filled endurance. It's the character of a person that is not swayed from their convictions and faithfulness, even in the greatest trials and sufferings. Self-control leads us to this next virtue as it's a patient enduring, a hope-filled enduring under pain and pressure. If we're going to inherit the promises of God, this must be a part of our lives. This must be a growing grace. For Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So we have, again, this need for steadfastness or patience or hope-filled endurance is just the best translation for it. That we have this vision that compels us forward. That when everything is going wrong, we are still going the right way. Because we have a steadfastness. This, when, when the ground is shaking beneath our feet, we might be shaking with it, but we're still looking due north. And then 
we also see that this steadfastness actually leads us to the next choreography step, which is godliness. And godliness is the broad term, but ultimately we see that it is a holiness or a piety or really just a reverence in the fear of God. And this is the fruit, again, of patient endurance. And we don't just become godly people overnight. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is our righteousness positionally, but we must practically grow in godliness. And there's just no way around it than to stay after it, than to pursue it. Paul tells Timothy that we must pursue righteousness, faith, and love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. After he says, you must flee these things. So the only way to pursue something is by very, its very nature, you must be leaving something else behind. We can't be pursuing godliness if we're living in the flesh all the time. We can't be running from the flesh and running, uh, we can't, excuse me, we can't be running to the flesh and running to godliness. The two will not work. So godliness is, again, this growth in holiness. And this holiness is a separation and a consecration to the plan of God in my life. Again, this holiness is a separation and consecration to the plan of God in my life. And Moving on, he says, brotherly affection. And this is the love of the brethren. This is so vital. It means cherishing the body of Christ. You know, there's, there's perhaps no greater litmus test to a saint than the love of the brethren. Because in our lives, the love of the brethren is the thing where the rubber meets the road where we encounter and do life with each other, and we're going to find out really quick if we're really committed to the body of Christ or not. We're going to find out really quick if we really love our brothers and sisters or if, or if, we're, or if we're not. And, and John tells us that we can't say that we love God and hate our brother. So it sort of exposes us to this need to have a brotherly affection. This Greek word is where we get our word Philadelphia from. In the Greek construct of the four loves, it was one of the four uh, next to agape and eros and um, phileo and then something else. I can't remember. Uh, but anyway, this, this brotherly affection is, is the word for phileo, and it speaks of the love of the brethren. And I think it's awesome because Peter already told us in his first letter that we have purified our souls by our obedience to the truth. For what? A sincere brotherly love. He says, so love one another from a pure heart. Love one another from a pure heart. And, you know, truly, we are our brother's keeper. And the true worshiper of God loves his brother, is responsible to and for his spiritual family. You don't have this autonomous Christianity where you can put your head in the sand and say, well, the body of Christ is all screwed up, but I have a great relationship with Christ, and I don't owe my brother anything. I'm just going to live life with Jesus, and the church is a mess. So, you know what? The church can be a mess. It can stay a mess, and I'm just going to, Set my face like a flint. And that's just stupid. Don't do that. You need to be committed to the body of Christ. It is a commandment that we would love the brethren. And then lastly, in keeping with just wrapping this up, the fullness of all of these virtues. Again, that's why they're preeminently found in the face of Christ. He's the image of the invisible God. He has revealed the Father to us. Is love. And this is where we get the agape love of God, the unconditional love of God in the sense that it is God's very nature. This is the goal and aim of all the rest that I would possess and keep 
this is important, a true and sincere love for God and his people. This is the aim of godliness, that we would love God and love his people. And I can tell you that I don't love God as I ought, and that's probably pretty obvious. Uh, it, It shouldn't really come as a shock in the sense that we're on the way, but what does come as a shock to me is that I've been on the way for quite some time, and I don't love God as I ought. I need to love the Lord, the Bible says, with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, and all my might. So this is the chief end, the apex of these virtues, that we would be a lover of God by apprehending how much he has first loved us, and in so proving that, we love his people. We care for his people. We are committed to his work through his people. And this is really the highest virtue. Love is the highest virtue that the Christian is called to because love finds its fulfillment in God himself. And in closing this message, it's really important that we see now the danger of not progressing. He says, for in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So as we started with, we saw that this is the problem that Peter's listeners had and that we have today, that we are prone to forgetfulness and spiritual blindness. I love that Eric chose the song, Be Thou My Vision, this morning, because I was thinking about that this week, just in relationship to this word and for my own life. And Lord, just be thou my vision, be thou my delight. Be my glory. I forget how the rest of it goes, but it's just, it's awesome. It's glorious. And it speaks to this need to have a readjusted vision that sees, for, to use the cliche, the forest through the trees, that sees the summit from the woods, that sees the God of glory from the things that occupy me right in front of my face. Because I don't know about you, but blindness is a real problem. Blindness and nearsightedness is a real snare. And forgetting God will always lead to ruin. Forgetfulness of the gospel. And you say, well, how can I forget the gospel? Like, it's the gospel. I mean, I know that I'm saved. I mean, this isn't day one. But we forget, man. We forget the grace of God. And we forget and we grow blind and we grow nearsighted and we get fixed on the things in front of us. But we are not fixing our eyes on Christ. And this is the great need of the Christian to remember, to exercise the ministry of memory, to say, Lord, I want to remember you every day. I want the ritual of my life to be that which looks to Jesus. Because the danger is real and the threat of ruin is real. All you have to do is look at people that we respected as mighty saints in just the last five years. Precious men of God that I thought were going to finish well have not finished well. And there's many, many more we don't even know about. We don't want to be in that list, brothers and sisters. We, we don't want to have our faith come to ruin. 
So there needs to be a wake-up call that says, if I am nearsighted and blind, Lord, I repent. When he said in Revelation to the church, he says, repent and do the things you did at the beginning when you had proper perspective, when you had the right vision. What was it that you were doing when you saw Christ at the beginning? Do those things again. Repent of your unbelief and your walking by sight and your nearsightedness. And brothers, I think the grace in this is that we ought to be repenting of this every single day because this is a problem every single day of our lives that we have exchanged faith for sight. We see what's in front of us instead of what's beyond it and we get flat-footed in our faith and we don't make progress. But the problem is that if we don't make progress, we cannot be secure that we have made a diligent effort to confirm our calling and election. That's why he says in closing in verse 10 and 11, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, I mean, that needs to be underlined in your Bible. I don't know about you. But like if there's something in the Bible that says, if you do this, you will never fall, that should be kind of important. You should underline that. You should be like, put that on the fridge. Practice these things and you will never fail. Wow. That's a big deal. It's a big deal to me that Peter says, do this, practice this, and you will reflect Jesus all the way to glory. I love that. I pray that we would be people who practice these things. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is where it gets really cool. Because as he already said, add to your faith, right? Supplement your faith. Now God's promise comes full in right behind you like a freight train. And it says, as you make every effort to be diligent and you press on in godliness and you work at these things and you progress in the choreography of God's plan for your life, God is swooping in behind you, richly supplying you with everything you need for life and godliness. And he's also ahead of you, keeping the door of glory open. Just as he said to his disciples, I go before you in John 14 to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. This is the promise of God for his people, that he's behind us and he's ahead of us. He's gone before us as the author and finisher of our faith. And he says, Peter says, in this way, God will richly provide for you. Meaning you don't have to conjure this up and then just hope you have enough to get there. You're not going to run out of supply because God is faithful to supply you with what you need if you are full of faith and you are diligent to the work of practicing godliness. Let's close in this. Please turn to 1 John chapter 3. A little bit beyond time. I apologize for that, but I think this is important enough to go long. In 1 John chapter 3, I'm just going to read a section of Scripture, make a couple comments, and I'll be quiet. But this is really good. 1 John chapter 3. What does it mean to practice these things? I mean, what does that look like? What is practice anyway in the Christian life? Well, Practice is a big deal. 
John says in chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. When he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him, praise God, as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, and you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Wow. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Well, that just cuts it right down the middle. I mean, there is no mistaking that. You say, you cannot be not progressing in righteousness, in just total apathy in your faith, in just atrophying in all of the spiritual disciplines. You cannot stay in that place, continually bound to sin, perpetually its slave, and then at the same time say, I know God. It's impossible. Those who practice righteousness are born of God. How do we practice righteousness? We abide in Christ and we prove our love for him by, what did he say? Keeping his commandments. Whoever makes a practice, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous in verse 7. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. And by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we Thank you, Father, for your word that you have indeed regenerated us by the Holy Spirit, put within us a love for you and a love for your people. But we are not where we ought to be individually, even corporately. We admit and confess before you, Lord, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, Lord. And we admit that there's many days in our lives where that is not the chief end of our day. Lord, we repent of that. We want the chief end of our lives to reflect your image, to be like Christ. We want to be people who practice righteousness and in so doing confirm our calling and election. Father, thank you for the grace that you have given us to know that we belong to you and to know that you will amply supply us with everything we need for life and godliness. You have gone behind us and you have gone before us and you will go with us. And we will not be shorthanded in the day of eternity if we commit our way to you. Help us to be a people. Help me 
to be a person who abides in Christ. And we commit this word and this work to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen.